Anu made his voice heard and spoke. He addressed his words to Kaka. Kaka, I shall send you to Kurnugi. You must speak thus to Reshkigo, saying, It is impossible for you to come up. In your year, you cannot come up to see us, and it is impossible for us to go down. In our months, we cannot go down to see you. Let your messenger come and take from the table. Let him accept a present for you. I shall give something to him to present to you. You're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex. This is my guest. Victoria! And we are reading Nergal and Eresh Kigal, translated by Stephanie Daly. This is an Akkadian language romance about the plague god and the queen of hell. Never heard that before. This story actually shows up in the 1300s BCE at Akhenaten's capital in Egypt, but most versions that we have are from very late in Mesopotamian history. Nergal is the Sumerian name of Era, a second millennium BCE god of disease, and Eresh Kigal is the queen of the Sumerian underworld. So there are many names for the Mesopotamian underworld, including Kur, which just means mountain, and Irkala. This text calls it Irkala and Kurnugi. So we see a long-term trend in Mesopotamian mythology where male gods take over the traditional roles of female gods. For example, Ninurta, Ashur, and Marduk all replaced Inanna as god of war, and Nabu replaced Nisaba as the patron god of scribes. Likewise, the male god Era, or Nergal, gradually replaced the traditional Sumerian goddess Ereshkigal as the deity of death and the deity in charge of the underworld. Among other things, this myth reifies his claim to her traditional realm. So in the story, there is a dinner party in heaven and all the gods are invited, but because Ereshkigal can't visit heaven and because the gods of heaven can't visit hell, they have to communicate via messengers. Communicating by messenger is a common theme in Mesopotamian mythology. So Kaka is the messenger of Anu or An, the Mesopotamian heaven god. Kaka went down the long stairway of heaven. When he reached the gate of Ereshkigal, he said, Gatekeeper, open the gate to me. So the gatekeeper lets him in through one of the seven gates of the underworld. This motif harkens back to the stories where Inanna visits Eresh Kigal, and she takes off an article of clothing for every gate that she goes through. It's a very interesting story for another time. He entered into Eresh Kigal's spacious courtyard. He knelt down and kissed the ground in front of her. He straightened up, stood, and addressed her. So the messenger relays Anu's invitation. Eresh Kigal made her voice heard and spoke. She addressed her words to her vizier, Namtar. By the way, Namtar is the same god as Namtara from episode 1. As we saw, he's another god of death and disease. O Namtar, my vizier, I shall send you to the heaven of our father Anu. Namtar, go up the long stairway of heaven. Take from the table and accept a present for me. Whatever Anu gives to you, you must present to me. Wow, it is. It is like the Green Knight. Same rules. That's cool. Right. What I just read in your notes right now. Great movie, by the way. I made my mom and my brother watch it, and they hated it. <laughs> anyway, when Namtar gets to heaven, almost all of the gods kneel to honor him. The only god who doesn't kneel to Namtar is Nergal, the god of war and disease, and our romantic interest for today. So Enki slash Ea, the god of wisdom, tries to admonish Nergal. The gods are kneeling together before him. The great gods, the lords of destiny. The gods who dwell within Irkala. Why do you not kneel before him? I keep winking at you, but you pretend not to realize. Wow, that's great. You know, when someone's just being, like, uncouth, and you keep winking at them, and they just totally have no <laughs> idea what's going on. Right. Although, if I was, if someone was winking at me in a public setting with no explanation, I would assume they're the one that's being socially inappropriate. That is a fair point. <laughs> so, Nergal has insulted Namtar and the entire underworld. So he has to go down to hell to apologize to Eresh Kigal. So before he goes, he gets advice from Ea, which again is the Akkadian name for the Sumerian god Enki. 
Aya called out and laid down instructions for Nirgo. My son, about the journey which you want to make, from the moment you arrive, follow whatever instructions I give you. From the moment they bring a chair to you, do not go to it, do not sit upon it. When the baker brings you bread, do not go to it, do not eat the bread. When the butcher brings you meat, do not go to it, do not eat the meat. When the brewer brings you beer, do not go to it, do not drink the beer. When they bring you a footbath, do not go to it, do not wash your feet. When Erish Kigal has been to the bath and dressed herself in a fine robe, allowing you to glimpse her body, you must not do that which men and women do. Okay, I'm just going to pretend to not hear that last part, but it's <laughs> definitely the foot bath of evil that makes you sell your soul. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's like the old fairy thing. You never, you never eat their food. So this was a very old trope in Mesopotamian literature by this point, at least as old as the 21st century BCE, when we see the story Gilgamesh, Enkidu, in the Netherworld. Essentially, the idea that you can't accept any comforts in the underworld or you'll be trapped there. I hope you noticed a big flashing light that says foreshadowing. Okay, so Nirgal is... The god of death. The god of death. And he's also the one who pisses everyone off. Right. And so he has to go to the underworld. To, like, apologize, essentially. So I, I don't understand if he's the god of death, why he would not already be in the underworld. So the historical answer is because Erish Kigal was the queen of the underworld before he was associated with the Sumerian mythology at all. So he's an Akkadian god. It's not its not quite that simple because Nergal is mentioned in Sumerian texts, but he's much more prominent later on when everyone speaks Akkadian instead of Sumerian. So they kind of have to graft him onto this pre-existing Sumerian mythology. So he's like a god of death, but he's not the god of death. Well, he's yeah. He's just a god. Basically, yeah. This myth is their way to graft this different god onto the pre-existing Sumerian mythology that has Erish Kigal, the queen of the underworld, ruling the underworld. It's a crossover episode. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think that's a very nice and very human thing for us to do. Is oh, be yes. like, hey, we finally hung out with those people from across the pond. We're going to have a crossover episode. <laughs> and it's all just on like stick puppets, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I think your guy at Argo should fall in love. The village theater is all inclusive. Right. So the story continues. Nergal set his face towards Kurnugi, to the dark house, dwelling of Irkala's god, to the house which those who enter cannot leave, on the road where traveling is one way only, to the house where those who enter are deprived of light, where dust is their food, clay their bread, they are clothed like birds with feathers. They see no light, they dwell in darkness, they moan like doves. So Nergal arrives at Erish Kigal's palace, and Namtar points out that this is a guy who refused to kneel to him. So Erish Kigal explains to Namtar that if he wants to be recognized like a king, he has to rule like a king. She refers to Enlil, who is the god of kingship and king of the gods. Erish Kigal made her voice heard and spoke. She addressed her words to Namtar. My dear Namtar, you should not seek Enlil's power, nor should you desire to do heroic deeds. What, come up and sit on the throne of the royal dais? Should I go up to the heaven of Anu, my father? Should I eat the bread of the Anunnaki? Should I drink the water of the Anunnaki? Go and bring the god into my presence. Weird speech. Well, we don't get it. You suck. You can't sit with us. Basically what she's saying is you wind up to heaven and you want to be treated like the god of heaven or like the king of the gods. You know, that's not your job. Different people have different responsibilities. It's not like I can go up and eat their food. So, you know, you can't necessarily go up and expect to be treated as well as they are in their own home. So Namtar lets Nergal through the seven gates. We see the same formula as before, including the kneeling and kissing the ground. Nergal straightened up, stood and addressed Erish Kigal. Anu, your father, sent me to see you, saying, Sit down on that throne. Judge the cases of the great gods, the great gods who live within Irkala. 
As soon as they brought him to a throne, he did not go to it. He did not sit on it. When the baker brought him bread, he did not go to it, and he did not eat the bread. When the butcher brought him meat, he did not go to it, and he did not eat the meat. When the brewer brought him beer, he did not go to it, and he did not drink the beer. When they brought him a foot bath, an unholy foot bath, (laughs) he did not go to it, and he did not wash his feet. And when she went to the bath and dressed herself in a fine robe and allowed him to catch a glimpse of her body, which is totally what consent is, (laughs) he resisted his heart's desire to do what men and women do. This time. Thirteen lines missing. Yep. Presumably, other stuff happens. But when the story resumes... She went to the bath and dressed in a fine robe and allowed him to catch a glimpse of her body. He gave in to his heart's desire to do what men and women do. The two embraced each other and went passionately to bed. So, they have sex for six days straight. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, me too. It's like, I'm not going to do the thing. I'm not going to do the... Oh! On the seventh day, Nergal says he's leaving to go back to heaven. They argue about it, but the text is broken. He says, let me go now, and I will return to Kurnugi later. Her mouth turned dark with rage. But he leaves anyway. Okay, so he just, like, was supposed to go to hell... To apologize. And And instead, he breaks all the rules, fucks everybody. (laughs) Apologize to her, make it clear you're genuinely regretful. Don't have sex with her. Like, he literally just shows up, is a complete homewrecker. She gave him the nip slip. It all happened. And now he's just going to run away. Yeah. So he does. He runs away in the the dead of night. (laughs) My job here is done. Nergal went and made his voice heard and spoke. He addressed his speech to the gatekeeper. Erish Kigal, your lady, sent me, saying, I am sending you to the heaven of Anu, our father, so let me be allowed out. That, that always works for me, by the way. Yeah. Just... Your boss said it's okay. Really? Yes, but let me out quickly. Nergal came up along the long stairway of heaven. Anu and Leon Ea saw him and said, The son of Ishtar has come back to us. She, Erish Kigal, were searched for him and seek to carry him back down. Ea, his father, must sprinkle him with spring water, and bareheaded, blinking and cringing, let him sit in the assembly of the gods. Like, still, same. Really same. (laughs) So, we'll see how this turns out, but first, we've finally made it to the Pottery Neolithic. This episode will focus on Anatolia during the Pottery Neolithic. We'll spend most of our time looking at Chatahuryuk, which is a large Neolithic town in south-central Anatolia. It's near the Roman city of Iconium and the modern Turkish city of Konya. It was occupied between about 7400 and 6000 BCE and a nearby mound to the west was occupied between about 6100 and 5600 BCE. So Tartahuyuk is on the banks of a river. This gave the town access to grassland, river, and wetland habitats. So we'll see that Tartahuyuk participated in regional trends. It adopted domestic grains, sheep, goats, and cattle. Like I said, we have pottery, although we'll talk about pottery next episode, as well as weaving and obsidian. We also see some stamp seals, which will be incredibly important in later periods. At the time of its foundation, Tartahuyuk was just a small settlement with a few mud brick houses, the area would have been good land for hunting. The population of the town grew fastest in the late 6000s BCE. 2,000 houses would have been home to a population of between 4,000 and 8,000 people, spread across an area of 13.5 hectares. This would put it among the top 15 densest districts of modern cities, like Cairo, Mumbai, Lagos, and Dhaka. For the Neolithic, we have an absurd amount of people crammed into one place. We're going to talk about the 8.2 Killier event, which is a worldwide climatic event resulting in cooler and drier conditions everywhere. This corresponded with a population decline at Chatahuyuk, and as we'll talk about, the first walled towns in Anatolia, which may be evidence of increased or more intensive warfare. Then we'll finish up by looking at the Domus Tepe Death Pit. To look at the local economy of Chatahuyuk, 
They grew emmer, einkorn, and bread wheat, as well as both two-row and naked six-row barley. As far as legumes, they grew peas, lentils, and vetch, as well as apples, almonds, hackberries, juniper berries, acorns, and pistachios. We have evidence of beer production. Plastered floors might be for malting grains. Dome kilns might be for mashing grains. And we see some deep, round pottery vessels, which would be good for fermentation. Chateauhuyuk was also heavily reliant on all four major livestock species. We know they kept them in pens and used their dung for fuel, and they would have grazed our herds of sheep and goats in a wide variety of different environments. They apparently switched from penning their animals and feeding them fodder to grazing them in open pastures early on, possibly because penning animals is less healthy for them, like we see at Asiklihuyuk, and also because you get the plants growing outside your town for free, that is, you don't have to expend labor to grow them. Over time, the quantity of adult cattle decreased from 45% during the late pre-Pottery Neolithic, the late 7,000s, to 36% near the peak of settlement, between about 6,500 and 6,300 BCE. This probably reflects more intensive culling practices, that is, more of the cattle are killed earlier to make more efficient use of their meat relative to the labor put into raising them. We can get a pretty good look at their diet. So, people would have eaten a mixed diet, including dairy products. Their main animal protein came from sheep and goats. You'll see that young male sheep and goats were also culled intensively. And as far as wild game, we have a quote from the Cambridge Asian History. We see remains of, quote, Wild cattle, wild sheep, onager, half-ass, red, roe, and fallow deer, ibex, wild boar, bear, hare, leopards, and various birds such as black crane, unquote. So early on at Chatahuyuk, during the pre-Pottery Neolithic, or the late 7000s BCE, we see a well-documented feasting tradition. First, people would acquire large bulls, either wild aurochs or aurochs-sized early domestics, it's notable that even in these early phases, we see the entire bull skeleton. So either they were slaughtered in town or killed outside town and then dragged into town whole. This may show some kind of importance placed on keeping the body intact. The largest aurochs could weigh three quarters of a ton. During this early period, wild bulls make up one-fifth of all animal remains to site, and they would have been the largest single source of animal products, which is interesting because they would be an incredibly dangerous animal to hunt. So we know this feasting tradition was extremely important. We have lots of art of people hunting bulls, along with deer and wild ass and the skulls, horns, and shoulder blades of bulls are displayed prominently in public buildings, so there's clearly a lot of ritual and symbolic importance there. And as we've talked about, this kind of a region-wide trend. It's not a mystery why bulls are the symbol of power and virility, because they're very large and strong. This tradition of feasting on big game apparently declined over time. So by the late 6000s at Chotahiruk, most meat comes from sheep and goats. Obviously, it's much less dangerous to kill a subadult male goat than it is to kill a wild bull. At Chotahiruk, there was almost no space between different buildings. Instead, people would walk around on the massive shared roof. All buildings were apparently only one story, and from the outside, this may have resulted in a mostly continuous external wall. So houses were made with wooden frames, their walls were made with unbaked clay bricks and then covered with plaster, the roof was made of reed bundles covered with a thick layer of mud, you would enter via a ladder through a hole in the roof, the internal walls would be decorated with murals, and along the walls would be built-in benches for sitting, working, and sleeping. These were often covered with reed or rush matting, which would be a base for cushions or bedding. We see lots of overlapping social networks at Chotahuyuk. The same groups of people used the same trash pits. Some people interacted because their houses were on the same path, literally footpath between houses. Artisans making beads and figurines supplied certain houses, and certain houses were connected by similar motifs in murals. For example, a pair of leopards appears in certain houses. In a 2012 paper, Ian Hodder and Lynn Mescal wrote, quote, None of these networks seemed to coincide significantly with others. Rather, there were complex overlapping sets of network relations, which created a highly resilient social and economic fabric, end quote. These social groups were apparently unconnected to either kinship or marriage. So for a modern example, we can look at medicine societies in indigenous Pueblo culture in what is now the southwestern U.S. So each society would have a special relationship to a specific wild animal, and these animals would be painted on the walls of domestic houses when they were used for ceremonial events. 
So at Chatahoyuk, we see no clear evidence of status hierarchy. Displays of wealth are rare. So if people built up a store of anything, they would tend to hide it instead of flaunting it. So for example, obsidian tends to be buried under the floor, not displayed, and grain stores are undecorated, unlike the rest of the house. So upon death, some bodies were apparently exposed, probably in a mortuary, possibly exposed to the sky to be eaten by vultures. This scene shows up in art. Either way, they found a way to remove all soft tissue. Then the dry skeleton would be wrapped up in textiles or baskets, and then buried with grave goods, including weapons or jewelry. Then sometimes the bones themselves would be painted. Several women were painted with red ochre or cinnabar. We see this also at Haji Firuz Tepe, which is the site that produced some of the first wine, and Tepe Siok, which we will visit in the Uruk Iran episode later on. Early on, the neck and eyebrows of the skull would be painted blue or green. Later on, they used blue or green beads instead, made of appetite and copper. Then the bodies would be buried under the floor of the house, tightly wrapped in the crouching position, buried with their heads attached to their bodies, at least at first. Like I said, kinship here appears to be practical, not biological. As a rule, skeletons buried in the same house were not genetically related. They tend to have different diets, and this shows us that relationships and death were apparently determined by activities in life, not kinship. And then we have some other buildings that are more richly decorated with murals. These have been called temples or shrines. They also have stone cult statues and richer burials that include obsidian mirrors and ceremonial weapons. So these are probably public buildings. More important people within the community may have been buried there. We also see some buildings called history houses. These are specific ritual spaces maintained and rebuilt over long periods of time. So Ian Hutter and Lynn Mescal in 2012 wrote about the construction of a shared history based on, quote, the passing down of human body parts and the construction of histories involving events associated with wild animals, end quote. Unlike later Mesopotamia temples, these history houses didn't control storage. That is, each household stored all of its own food. In one building, we see 62 people buried. It's possible that the last burial under a house would be the occasion for abandoning a house, in which case it's notable that the final burials include both men and women. So I mentioned that the bodies were buried with their heads attached at first, so sometimes a year or so after burial, the grave would be reopened and the head would be cut off with a knife, sometimes including the mandible or jawbone, and sometimes not. This leads to distinctive marks on the bones. Both male and female skulls were kept and used during rituals. They were painted red with ochre or cinnabar, which is a toxic mercury sulfide. Usually they would paint the surface of the bone, but we do have a few plaster skulls, like at Jericho. Lots of these skulls were apparently kept out for a while. They're often weathered, and some teeth in the front have fallen out which we don't see when heads are buried with the body and then stay in the ground. These skulls were sometimes left behind in houses, apparently as part of abandonment rituals. So people would clean the floor, remove the roof and the walls, and then build a new house on the same foundation. This may have something to do with the skulls found in the backfill at the pits at Gerbekli Tepe. One plaster skull was found in the arms of a woman over 50. The skull had been replastered and repainted, so it had probably been above the ground for a while before it was buried with this woman. A 2017 paper by Scott Haddow and Christopher Knuzel found 12 entire skulls and three crania, or just a skull without the jawbone, intentionally retrieved from primary burials. In secondary burials, they found six skulls and 10 crania. And in tertiary context, that is non-burial context, they found remains of at least 43 individuals and 15 headless skeletons, which made up only 3% of total burials. So the vast majority of people did not have their heads removed, but the heads that were removed were treated in different ways. So there's kind of an old-fashioned idea in this field of a universal Neolithic mother goddess. It was a big deal in the late 20th century, both among academics and modern pagans. The most common form of the idea is that Neolithic Eastern Europe used to be a patriarchal, matrilocal society, with the worldview centered on an analogy between agriculture and female fertility. This would explain all the Venus figurines. Depending on who's talking, this may or may not have been a golden age, but everything changed when the Indo-European horsemen attacked, and they would have imposed their violent patriarchy on both Europe and Anatolia, resulting in a more familiar ancient world. 
This idea has mostly gone out of favor, not least because the argument included a bunch of stuff that James Millart just made up. We don't know what the Venus figurine symbolized. The spread of Indo-European languages was a long and complex process, not the result of a single invasion by a specific ethnic group. And we don't have any anthropological evidence of existing matriarchies as such. So sometimes descent is traced through the female line, which is matrilineal, and sometimes men go to live with their wives' families, which is matrilocal. But we don't see any societies where women as a class oppress men as a class. Generally, the more power women have, the more egalitarian society is. So there's no evidence of a kind of mirror version of a patriarchy where women rule with an iron fist. So at Chateauhuryuk specifically, in 2004, Ian Hodder wrote, quote, The lives of men and women in the town do not appear to have differed greatly. One or the other sex may have exercised more power in certain spheres, but evidence to date indicates that both sexes played key roles in social and religious life, end quote. Men and women seem to have eaten the same things. In some societies, men control access to meat or other high-value foods. That is not the case here. Women seem to have more cavities than men, so they may be eating more processed grain, but the wear patterns on their teeth are the same. Men and women seem to have done the same types of work, that is, their skeletons generally show the same types of wear and tear, unlike at Abu Huraira, which we looked at previously. Both men and women had soot on their ribs from breathing smoky air from indoor fireplaces. The ladder holes in the ceiling also appear to be their chimneys, and because their lungs decayed but the soot inside their lungs didn't, it built up on their ribs, showing us that men and women spent comparable amounts of time indoors. And both male and female skulls are used in rituals, which shows that the importance of ancestors didn't depend on sex. So Ian Hodder suggests, quote, that lineage or family could be traced through both female and male lines, end quote. He also wrote, quote, We are not witnessing a patriarchy or a matriarchy. What we are seeing is perhaps more interesting, a society in which, in many areas, the question of whether you are a man or a woman did not determine the life you could lead, end quote. Men tend to appear much more in art. They're often bearded and wearing leopard skins, hunting or taunting wild animals. Art of male animals often shows bulls or stags with erect penises. Most animal heads attached to walls and plastered over were male, including the skulls of bulls and rams. And to the extent that burial was based on family, it appears to have been patrilocal. So skeletons of men buried together are more similar than women, which may indicate that wives moved in with their husband's family, not the other way around. So speaking of women, infant burials are generally near the hearts. Hotter suggests that this might indicate some kind of gender division of labor. But if this shows that child rearing was a female endeavor, it also would have to show that making obsidian tools was a female endeavor. Because like I said, obsidian is also often found buried underneath the hearth. There's a famous figurine of a woman seated on a leopard throne which was found in a grain bin. We also see a female figurine with an actual wild grain seed stuck in her back. This might show a connection between women and agriculture. Most paintings of women show them gathering plants, but in general, agriculture is much less important in visual art than hunting is. Ian Hodder writes, quote, The artistic evidence, then, points to a divided world, one dominated by males and their activities involving hunting and wild animals, and the other, less frequently portrayed world, involving women and plants, end quote. So to look at art... We see material imports like flint from northern Syria, minerals like limestone, calcite, alabaster, and obsidian, dentalium shells from the Mediterranean, cowrie shells from the Red Sea, lead and copper were used to make beads, jewelry, and maybe drills, and to make paint, they ground up malachite, lazurite, hematite, limonite, vermilion, and cinnabar. Statues are fairly common at Chotahuyuk. Early on, they're mostly made of marble, limestone, or alabaster. Later on, they're made of painted clay. We have over 2,000 figurines, most of animals. Human figurines with no obvious sex are more common than either male or female figurines, and less than 3% of all figurines are female. These female figurines can depict both young and mature women. They're often depicted alongside leopards or vultures. For example, I mentioned that statuette of a woman sitting on a leopard throne with another cat on her lap. We see male figurines depicting children, adolescents, and bearded men. They're often depicted alongside bulls, rams, and stags. So I mentioned that houses had murals in them. Certain buildings, the shrines, are much more richly decorated. Paintings of bulls and rams incorporate real horn cores from those animals. 
and leopards are often associated with a female figure. Leopard skins are the most common motif in wall paintings, but we've only found a single leopard bone at the site. It was a toe bone. We have two quotes from the Cambridge Ancient History. Quote, symbolic representations are common. Bucrania, or bull skulls, and benches with bull's horns in rows, mottled breasts containing skulls of vultures, lower jaws of wild boar, heads of weasel and fox, all scavengers and harbingers of death. End quote. Next quote. Even more remarkable are pictures connected with death. Scenes of enormous vultures pecking at headless corpses, a figure carrying human heads, or a scene of a man armed with a sling protecting a corpse from the attention of two black vultures. End quote. Some paintings depict people dressing as vultures. Like I said, some skeletons show evidence of being picked apart by vultures. This may attest to a tradition of sky burial, or exposure, you know, letting wild birds pick apart a corpse. Similarly, at Gebekli Tepe, we see art of people turning into vultures. The wing of a common crane was found in a deposit between walls. We see cut marks on the bone, so they might have poked a hole through it, maybe to hang it up and maybe to use it in a costume. Cranes are common in art at both Chatalhuyuk and Gebekli Tepe. One mural at Chatalhuyuk shows dancing cranes, and two dancing cranes on pillars at Gebekli Tepe apparently have human legs. This may point to a ritual crane dance that persisted for centuries. The King Must Die by Mary Renault had a take on this. We see another mural at Chatalhuyuk depicting two wild asses facing each other right below two cranes. This motif of pairs of animals facing each other is common at Chatalhuyuk. We can also look at the twin pillars facing each other at Gebekli Tepe, including pairs of animals like foxes. So one of the murals appears to depict the nearby volcano Hassan Da. We see two peaks painted red. There are arched black lines spouting from the top, and in the foreground we have lots of rectangles, which might have depicted the town itself. This volcano appears to have erupted in the 7500s BCE, a thousand years before this painting was made, and also before agriculture, pottery, or permanent buildings in the region. So memory of this eruption would have had to be passed down through oral culture. This is not impossible. The Klamath people in Oregon remember the formation of Crater Lake 8,000 years ago, and several indigenous peoples in Australia remember the coastline as it existed 10,000 years ago. So this probably shows that the people at Chatarjuk were descended from the people who saw the volcano. In 2010, Elizabeth Barber wrote, quote, If people wander away from the source of an unusual event, their myths on the topic tend to become garbled at best and drop out at worst, because they no longer have a reality check in their backyard, end quote. If so, it appears that agriculture and pottery reached Chatarjuk via cultural diffusion, that is not only a migration of agricultural peoples into the lands of foragers, probably there was a fair amount of intermarriage between the two, but settlement near Chatalhuyuk is continuous enough that it makes sense that the same group of people's descendants would remember the eruption. So to look at health at Chatalhuyuk, in 2019, Clark Larson and colleagues wrote that compared to earlier sites, Chatalhuyuk, quote, reveals increasing costs to members of the settlement, including elevated exposure to disease and labor demands, end quote. The main reasons for this include dependence on cereal agriculture, growing population size and density, and more mobility required for larger-scale herding. So some of the diseases we see here include the quote-unquote diseases of civilization, like cardiovascular disease, cancer, tooth decay, and crowd-based infectious diseases. They had a clear sense of organization, so houses are free of random debris. This cleaning may have been a regular part of abandonment rituals, and houses had dedicated toilet areas. But analysis of their floors have turned up evidence of both animal and human fecal matter. We see the same disposal area for both trash and human waste. And these, as well as animal pens, were very close to human residences, leading to the worst imaginable scenario for disease transmission. Processed cereals were made into bread and porridge, and this kind of soft, carbohydrate-rich food would lead to all sorts of dental problems, as we've talked about. We also see signs of increased interpersonal violence. In one study of 93 skulls, 25 showed signs of conflict that is getting hit in the head, possibly from clay balls shot from slings, which we'll talk about today. Slightly more women than men have these injuries women are also more likely to suffer repeat injuries, especially on the back of their head. So now that we are in the archetypal Neolithic megasite, let's look at Neolithic health in general. 
So to go back a little bit and look at the Paleolithic, there are some diseases and species of parasite that adapted to pre-hominid ancestors, in other words, that evolved alongside Homo sapiens, including our gut microbiota, head and body lice, pinworms, yaws, and salmonella. At least as old as the Paleolithic are diseases like malaria, tuberculosis, leprosy, whooping cough, herpes, and amoebic dysentery. Most of these diseases progress very slowly. They can be latent for years. These qualities are an adaptation to a low population density where you can't kill your host because you have very few humans spread out across a large region. So if a disease kills its host and it has no one to spread to, and that disease itself will die. So we know that agriculture spread across the Near East by about 7,000 BCE. This entailed human control over the reproduction of domestic plants and animals via artificial selection, giving humans a reliable access to a food surplus. This led to massive changes in lifestyle and society, including larger, denser communities, which led to more contact with more people, more strenuous and repetitive labor, and close contact with the communities of living animals for the first time. And for us to farm, we need new types of labor, which we're not with a body evolved for. So we see evidence of long workdays of planting, harvesting, and grinding grain. We've already talked about repetitive strain injuries, especially in women, from grinding the grain. All of this is much less common before the Neolithic. And of course, contact with animals led to the first zoonotic diseases, that is, diseases that originated in animals and spread to humans, leading to increased mortality from disease. By one estimate, average human life expectancy dropped to the low 20s in the Neolithic, despite both a higher fertility rate and more productive agriculture. Obviously, exposure to lots of people and animals means lots of exposure to disease, and especially for women, more births means a higher likelihood of dying in childbirth, which is why women's life expectancy dropped more than men's did. All of this may have created an evolutionary advantage for bodies more focused on repairs and maintenance, like their immune system, DNA repairs, and tumor suppression. Over time, as people who didn't have these died and people who did have these had more kids, this would increase representation of these kinds of bodies in the population. People generally got shorter because of more malnutrition and vitamin deficiency correlating with declining body mass. We see the same effect in domestic animals for the same reason. So by the 6000s BCE, Chata Hyruk had 8,000 people living there, about 100 times the population of your average hunter-gatherer community. They were all living in the same place year-round in permanent buildings, with, in their case, literally no space between buildings, which means they spent a lot of time interacting in close quarters with lots of people and animals. Their population density was 10 to 20 times higher than it had been before. Animals were also crowded indoors for the first time, along with, of course, mice, rats, and fleas. And like I said, they didn't have a super great grasp on public sanitation yet, all of which was great news for disease, which could spread from animals to humans or from one group of people to another. This is probably the period when gonorrhea evolved from meningococcus, so I'll leave it to the listener to figure out how an upper respiratory disease became a venereal disease. We also see crowd diseases, which are more virulent. These include influenza, measles, mumps, chickenpox, and smallpox, all of which are an adaptation to dense populations. Now, because there are so many people living side by side, and any given disease has a very good chance of spreading to a new host, it's now okay to kill or disable your host. So the population of any given settlement is likely to have similar genetics within that settlement. Whether the society is matrilocal or patrilocal, either way, people are living with their ancestors in some capacity. And they're also clearing land to plant crops, which is ideal for mosquitoes, especially where they weren't previously a problem. So most natural environments are set up to absorb all of the ambient water. So, you know, standing water, which you might be storing to water your crops, are great breeding grounds for mosquitoes. So we see malaria spread along with agriculture. This probably would have torn through communities with no previous exposure to malaria. So let's go a little bit west to the area of Pisidia in southwestern Anatolia. Here it would have rained between about 400 and 800 millimeters every year, which is generally a comfortable margin for dry farming. But by the late 6000s BCE, during the 8.2 kilo year event that we talked about, the sites of Hadralar, Huygurchek, and Badamagaji were all destroyed by fire. When the fire is accidental, usually we see a small area affected, and people rebuild and keep using the area. Whereas in war, the objective is total destruction, and it often results in unburied bodies in the streets. So what we see at these sites is much more similar to an intentional destruction and war than an accidental fire. 
Another innovation around this time are little clay projectiles shot by slings. These appear in Chattahyuk around 6500 BCE, and they appear in the Lake District, or Pisidia, around 6300 BCE, the same time as walls. These become more common over time, while bows and arrows become less common. There are a few benefits to this kind of clay projectile. You can find clay anywhere, especially since most sites are near rivers or lakes, so you're not reliant on particular sources of stone. They could be mass-produced, which means you're expending less labor per projectile, and it's okay to miss. They're made in a standard size, so it's easy to practice shooting with the same shape and weight of object. These clay bullets are extremely common across the pottery Neolithic Near East. They're often found in large numbers, which are called piles of ammo. So this may be a region-wide type of warfare, but they could also be used in hunting. They'll also show up much later during the Ubayat and Uruk periods. So by around 6200 BCE, we see large, dense agricultural sediments. They have fortifications, which would be a huge time and resource investment. They have an arsenal of clay slingshots, which would be the main form of late Neolithic warfare. And of course, because this 8.2 killer event, they would have a climate crisis, resulting in crop failure, famine, drought, and flood, depending on where you are. Some towns got burned. For example, Hajalar was burned at least twice, around 6,000 and 5,800 BCE. Both times, bodies were left unburied in the streets. We also see lots of complete pottery, stone tools, and thousands of beads. So if people had to flee in a hurry, they would have to leave a lot of their stuff behind. Around 5,800 BCE, at Hajalar, we see a central building with walls 2 to 4 meters thick. It was built on a layer of limestone rubble, or the previous destruction layer. This fortification wall surrounded the entire mound with a diameter of 100 meters, and we see no other structures. So other houses are connected to the inside of the fortification wall, not separate buildings. So this foreshadows the rhythm of later Bronze Age warfare, where someone would come in, sack loot, and burn the city, and eventually people would come and rebuild on the ruins, you know, level the ruins, maybe fill it in with dirt or something, and then build a new city on top of it. Along with your buildings, you know, you would build a fortified citadel on the highest part of the mound, or the Acropolis, the upper town and surrounded with walls, and then we wait till the next siege and hope that they don't sack and loot and burn your city. Speaking of walls, there are lots of uses for walls, for example, diverting the flood water away from houses, blocking wind and sandstorms, and keeping children and domestic animals in and wild animals out. In a 2011 paper, Bleda During found no clear evidence of fortification walls during the Neolithic. So during historical periods, walls protected the city from invading armies. This has been their stated purpose for most of history. It's a central feature of the state. You know, you want to keep your taxpayers and your royal subjects in and your enemies out. From anthropological examples, we can see that more frequent war results in more fortifications. The earliest wall in Anatolia shows up at Badamagaji around 6300 BCE. It's not clear if Hajalar had a wall the first time it was burned, around 6000 BCE. And in later levels at Hajalar, in the early 5000s, we see walls, towers with stone foundations, a deep stone-lined well inside the walls, giving people safe access to water, all of which would be preparations for an extended siege. In a different episode, I mentioned that Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem, built a massive tunnel leading from the inside of the walls to the nearest source of fresh water, which again would be preparations for an extended siege. We talked about the walls of Jericho in episode 4. These date from around 8000 BCE. They were originally thought to be evidence of prehistoric warfare, but more likely they were built to redirect flood water. We don't see any evidence of large-scale violence in the Near East before about 6000 BCE, and we don't see any intentional destruction layers, we don't see any mass graves of decomposed people, and no fortifications, and so on. A wall surrounded by a trench or a moat is a common fortification throughout world history. It's hard to run across a trench and even harder to ride a horse across a trench. But this combination of walls and trenches can also be useful to redirect flood water. Chattahyuk does not have a wall. It's sometimes claimed that the outer walls of houses would have formed a defensive perimeter around the entire site, but that outer wall would not have been continuous. At the site of Hoja Cheshme in the European part of modern Turkey around 6000 BCE, we see a massive stone wall interpreted as a fortification, but it's only one meter tall with a smooth top. And the fact that they put in the effort to smooth out the top probably shows they weren't intending to build further fortifications on top of it. So a one meter tall wall would work to keep in animals and small children, but it wouldn't work to keep out armies. 
Even at the site of Hadjalar, there's no evidence that the wall surrounded the entire settlement. It might have just divided individual neighborhoods, maybe different social groups or dividing residential homes from public space or something like that. This might seem counterintuitive. Why would they go to all that trouble if not to save their lives? But Stonehenge isn't defensive, and neither is Gebekli Tepe, so we have no way to fully understand the motivations. These walls may be purely symbolic separations, you know, inside the town versus outside the town, with no military use whatsoever. Who knows? So to summarize, we have no widespread evidence of warfare until the late 6000s BCE, when intensive agriculture combined with sedentarism, combined with climate change, seems to have given people in Anatolia no choice but to start fighting each other for resources. So we're going to finish today by looking at the Domus Tepe death pit. So Domus Tepe is in southeastern Anatolia. It was occupied between about 5800 and 5500 BCE. This is the far northwestern edge of the Halaf culture. And this is a huge Neolithic town, around 20 hectares, making it among the largest Neolithic sites. So it covered 20 times as much land area as the average village. This doesn't necessarily mean the population was 20 times bigger. It may be that a smaller population was moving around a large area. Unlike later periods, Domus Tepe is not at the top of a settlement hierarchy. That is, it doesn't seem to be a political or economic or religious center for nearby smaller villages. Like Chatanyuk, it was just a really big version of a small autonomous village. Here we see 150 stamp seals and pendants, probably for pressing into clay, but we found very few stamp seal impressions from them. In general, burials here are rare, with one major exception. So at some point, probably in the early 5500s BCE, 35 to 40 people were buried all at once, or at most over a couple days, resulting in a death pit. This was a unique event at Domus Tepe, arguably in this entire region. There are a couple other mass burials that we'll look at, but not a whole lot of them. So step one of constructing this death pit would be to dig a big pit, then dig three to four holes at the bottom and fill them with regular debris, including animal bones, except for one small pot, which contained a human skull. Then you want to cover that with more trash, especially cattle bones, which may be remains from a feast. Then you cover that with a layer of silt. This may have been unintentional because the pit flooded, maybe it rained during the process of trying to fill this pit. But above the silt, you want to put in lots of human bones. We don't see any complete skeletons. They're all disarticulated. In other words, all jumbled up. But we do see lots of cut marks indicating that the skeletons may have been defleshed or maybe dismembered. We also see a fragment from a pot that was sliced before it was fired, which may be a parallel to the dismemberment of human bodies. The symbolic link between clay and life or flesh is extremely old and extremely common in pottery-using societies. Also in the Slayer, we see lots of stamps and pendants, mostly made of serpentinite, as well as jasper, alabaster, steatite, limestone, quartzite, and sandstone. These deposits were covered with a thick layer of ash. The actual burning appears to have taken place elsewhere, but a lot of stuff did get burnt. Mixed in with the ash, we find the crouched body of a child, which was decapitated, but the head was buried in the same layer. After the pit was filled, they dug a smaller pit nearby and filled it with human skulls and long bones, as well as dog skulls. More on that in a bit. We also see some evidence of cannibalism. So some human bones have traces of defleshing or cooking, as well as bite marks from human teeth. So take that as you will. But we don't see any evidence that they were eating dogs. Speaking of which, dogs were buried alongside humans in the death pit, which may indicate that dogs were associated with particular people or that they played an important symbolic role. People and dogs were treated in similar ways, unlike other animals in the pit. They were arranged at a particular place in the pit at a particular point in the ritual, and both were treated with a focus on the head. Both were decapitated. Dog skulls were buried above the pit after it was filled. All of these treatments are unique to humans and dogs at this pit and not other animals. Which I guess raises the question, for pottery Neolithic Domus Tepe, did dogs have souls? One theory is that the head would be the center of the identity, definitely because that's where the face is, maybe because that's where the brain is. Cutting off a corpse's head would be a formal separation of the identity from the body. And if you bury all skulls in the same place, you would pull the identities into a collective identity. In that case, it's important that dog skulls are buried with them. So the only other dog bones buried along with the skulls are from the paws and the tail. These are the hardest bones to remove from a pelt. And of course, the dog pet will decompose, leaving just the little bones that were not removed from the pelt. 
so it's hard to know how to interpret these dogs. They may have been killed when their owners died. They may have died naturally and then just been reinterred in this death pit. They may be guard dogs for the afterlife, and they might be involved in some kind of death-related ritual. In a 2007 paper, Stuart Campbell wrote, quote, It seems clear that the events that led to the death pit were very dramatic and would have had a significant impact on many people within and perhaps beyond the settlement, either because of their relationship with the deceased or as participants in and observers of the ceremonies. A lasting social memory would undoubtedly have been created within the community, end quote. So Domus Tepe, because of its size, was probably home to many different lineages. This kind of secondary burial, that is, digging up old bones and putting them all in one place, would be a way to combine lots of individual deaths into a single ceremony, which might help cement a communal identity instead of individual family relationships with individual dead people. So here we can see a difference between funeral rites and ancestor rites. Funerary rites honor the recent death of a particular person and prepare them for the afterlife. It's a formal process for removing both the person and the body from their community. Whereas ancestor rites strengthen the ties between the living and the dead and reify the relationship between the living community and their collective memory of their collective ancestors. And that's that on Pottery Neolithic Anatolia. So previously, Erish Kigal, the queen of the Mesopotamian underworld, couldn't make it to a party in heaven, so she sent her vizier, Namtar, in her place. Nergal, the god of war, disease, and death, refused to kneel to honor him. So Nergal had to go down to the underworld to apologize. He was told, among other things, to not have sex with Erish Kigal, but they immediately fell in love and boned for six days, at the end of which he snuck out to go back to heaven. And Erish Kigal is about to find out. Namtar made his voice heard and spoke, addressed his words to Erish Kigal, his lady. The messenger of Anu, our father, who came to see us. Before daylight, he disappeared. Ereshkigal cried aloud, grievously, fell from the throne to the ground, then straightened up from the ground. Her tears flowed down her cheeks. Era, the lover of my delight, I did not have enough delight with him before he left. Era, the love of my delight, I did not have enough delight with him before he left. Good woman, strong woman. She's just... <laughs> Six days, one I just did not get enough. Yeah. <laughs> they, they made them like that in, you know, the ancient days. Yeah, really. that's true. <laughs> Takes me at least seven consecutive days to get off. Cut that part out. It's not funny anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Go, Namtar. You must speak to Anu and Leel and Ea. Set your face towards the gate of Anu and Leel and Ea to say, ever since I was a child and a daughter, I have not known the playing of other girls. I have not known the romping of children. That God whom you sent to me and who has impregnated me, impregnated yeah, me, let him sleep with me again. Send that God to us and let him spend the night with me as my lover. I am unclean and I am not pure enough to perform the judging of the great gods, the great gods who dwell within Urkala. If you do not send that God to me according to the rites of Irkala and the great earth, I shall raise up the dead and they will eat the living. I shall make the dead outnumber the living. This is good. There's a lot of good drama here. Right? <laughs> so in the original version, it's like Persephone demanding the respect of getting her baby daddy back. Yes. To pay child support. Essentially, yes. I was born in the wrong decade. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great use of four lions. Right. Namtar came up the long stairway of heaven, and when he arrived at the gate of Anu, Enlil, and Ea, Anu, Enlil, and Ea saw him and said, what have you come for? Yep. <laughs> That's a message. waste of tablet. Well, and then I cut out the bit where he repeats her entire message from earlier verbatim. It's storytelling. Yeah. It's yeah. storytelling. For those of you in the back who didn't hear it the first time. Ea made his voice heard and spoke, addressed his words to Namtar. Enter, Namtar, the court of Anu. Search out your wrongdoer and bring him. When he entered the court of Anu, all the gods were kneeling humbly before him. All the gods of the land were kneeling humbled before him. 
He went straight up to one, but did not recognize that God. He went straight up to a second and a third, but did not recognize that God either. So Namtar goes back down to hell to report. Namtar went and then addressed his words to his lady. My lady, about your sending me up to the heaven of Anu, your father. My lady, there was only one God who sat bareheaded, blinking and cringing at the assembly of the gods. Go seize that God and bring him to me. Ea, his father, sprinkled him with spring water, and he is sitting in the assembly of all the gods bareheaded, blinking and cringing. So we have a long section that's broken. When we return, Nergal is apparently preparing to invade heaven. We see him getting his weapons ready. And again, Nergal is also called Era. Era took to heart the speech of Namtar. He oiled his strap and slung his bow. Nergal went down the long stairway of heaven, and when he arrived at the gate of Erish Kigal, he said, Gatekeeper, open the seven gates. He struck down Nadu, the doorman of the first gate, and did not let him grapple with him. Cha. Pretty much. So, yeah, I, I, I'm going to my girlfriend's house, so I'm going to beat up all seven of her bodyguards on my way there. Yeah, but he also, like, begged to leave. Well, yeah. And then got commanded to go back. Yes. And now he's raiding the front door. It'd be like that sometimes. This formula repeats for another six gates. Yeah. And he slaps the doorman and goes through the other six of them. But don't worry, it's a sex thing. Nergal entered her wide courtyard and went up to her and laughed. He seized her by her hairdo and pulled her from the throne. He seized her by her tresses. The two embraced each other and went passionately to bed. Oh my god, he seized her by her hairdo. (laughs) They just let anybody write stories back then. (laughs) (laughs) So they have sex for another six days. Unfortunately, the end of the story is fragmentary. It gets more and more fragmentary until it's broken entirely. When the seventh day arrived, Anu made his voice heard and spoke, addressed his words to Kaka, his vizier. Kaka, I shall send you to Kurnugi, to the home of Erish Kigal, who dwells within Irkala, to say, that God whom I sent you, forever, those above, those below. The what? Well, it's, it's broken. Like, the, 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 physically, the words are broken. So, like, we get less and less of it as yeah. it goes down. So. As this kind of word really as above, so below. It I mean, yeah. doesn't make sense. It's anything written on clay tablets, but only get part of it. It's cool though. I'm getting yeah. like reality TV. Yeah, exactly. Well, this has been Nirgal and Ereshkigal. Kigal.